And uh, I think the bulletin says 27 to 47, but actually I was thinking 27 to 42. So we'll just go through 42. But this is Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is from Matthew chapter 5. And it says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse to the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. We are back this week in Galatians. If you've been with us, we've been working our way through the book of Galatians and we're going to jump right back into it this week. We're actually to the second half of chapter five now. I think we're uh, I think this marks maybe the 11th week. So we're getting we're getting close. We're getting close to the end. Um, I said last week. We've been talking a little bit about there's some very natural divisions in the book of Galatians. And the third break really is the last two chapters. And it really has to do a lot with personal application of the gospel, of the main message of what Paul's saying all throughout Galatians. And we really got into that last week. But there's a lot of connections all the way through it. It's not just uh, that now this is the personal application. What we're going to look at today has even been kind of hit on in different parts. And this really brings it to a fullness So if you remember, if you were here with us uh, about three weeks ago, we looked at what happens when we take our eyes off of Christ and other things start to slip into our lives that become the main thing and what happens. We're going to kind of pick up on that today. We also looked at what happens a couple weeks ago with Abraham, using Abraham as an example. Paul went back to the Old Testament and he talked about Abraham and Sarah deciding to have a child with the maidservant. And what we looked at is Abraham. Abraham and Sarah had trusted themselves. They trusted their own flesh rather than trusting what God had told them. And that's really what we're going to get in today in a fuller view. The passage we're going to look at today, we're going to look at verses 16 to 25 in Galatians chapter 5. And what we're going to see there is there's a war that goes on between in the, the life of a believer between the spirit, God's Holy Spirit, and our flesh. 
The spirit and the flesh are at war. And we've seen that a little bit in different areas already. But today we're really going to look at what the fruit of those are. When we choose the flesh over the spirit, it's detrimental and what that looks like. And then we're going to look what it looks like to really follow the spirit and be led by the spirit. So let's look at Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 16 through 25 and then we'll, we'll look at those and get into it. So it says, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let's pray and then we're going to look at those verses. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We pray that um, we could uh, just practice what this says even today as we worship. That we would be led by your Spirit that your Holy Spirit would come to open our eyes and ears to hear your word clearly, that we would see what you would have for us, that your word would uh, just stand on its own, that we would let it stand on its own, let it speak for itself. We thank you for your word and what you've given us. We pray that today um, this time would be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this today, what we're really going to see, like I just, just mentioned, there's a war within believers. There's a war within us. Our fleshly side, our our human sinful nature, and the new nature that we have when God gives us his Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at that. And as we do, we're going to see that a lot of times we settle for the fleshly side. We settle for the things we shouldn't, and we slip to that side. And the reality is, a lot of times it's easier to do so, and that's part of what we're going to see. And the reason uh, it's easier to do so is a lot of times it takes faith to walk by the Spirit, And that's the reality of it. So as we look at it today, I want us to ask the question, what happens when we give in to the flesh? What does that look like? And there's a lot that kind of falls under that, but that's the main heading I want us to to start with. What happens when we give in to the flesh? The second part is, why do we even do that? Why do we give in to the flesh? And then the third part, how do we deal with it? Or how do we change that? How do we begin to walk by the Spirit? So let's start with what happens when we give in to the flesh. And look at verse 17 again with me, just so we get a good idea of what we're talking about. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. And the first thing I really want us to see when we say what happens when we walk by the flesh as opposed to God's leading in his spirit is the reality is we are on the opposite side of what God would have for us. We're opposed to the things that he would have for us in his spirit. That's what Paul says very clearly in verse 17, that the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh are opposed. 
And I want you to see that first. But when we start to work into how serious of an issue it is when we give in to the flesh, we need to stop and think, what is the what does it mean when Paul says the flesh? The Bible talks about it a lot. It has a little different connotation depending on the the context. But here, what Paul's talking about, we need to consider what is the flesh. And simply put, the biblical understanding here is that when Adam and Eve sinned, going all the way back to the very beginning, sin entered the world. And sin is a disease. It's a, uh, something that's infected all of humans, all of us, every single person here. Sin has affected you. And we are sinful. So when we are born, we are the biblical teaching. God's word tells us is we are born sinful. It's already there. It's, it's in us. And it's, it helps me, maybe it helps you to think of it as a disease that gets into everything. It gets into your heart, your mind, your will, your intellect, in all areas. So when we talk about the flesh, that's what we're talking about. Us, apart from God, on our own, is we are fleshly, and that means that sin has come into us and affected every part of our being. Essentially, we are a mess. So when Paul talks about flesh and our flesh at war with the Spirit, that's what he's talking about. Our fleshly sinful nature that we're born with. We're born into that. And the reality is when we talk about becoming a believer and what we've talked about all through Galatians, that we're saved by Christ alone. We put our faith in what Jesus has done for us. The only way that can happen biblically is the Holy Spirit comes and he opens your eyes to see Jesus and for who he is and what he's done. Because we are so marred by our fleshly nature, our sin nature, we cannot see him for who he is unless the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes. So that we're talking about a huge difference between spirit and flesh. And it's only when God opens our eyes and allows us to see that then we're made righteous in God's sight. Now, let's just stop and make sure we're very clear. When you become a Christian, God opens your eyes to see Jesus and you say, yes, I am sinful and I put my faith in Jesus alone. At that moment in God's sight, you are made perfect. You get Christ's righteousness to you. But that doesn't mean you're still, you've still got this flesh around you that you're dealing with. And not only are you made perfect in his eyes, he immediately gives you his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. So that's where we get this idea of the war happening. Because what happens is here we are, this sinful, fleshly, messed up person. And God puts his very holy, perfect, pure presence inside of you. But you've still got all this stuff. And there's a war that happens there. And that's what I'm trying to get us to see, how far apart they are. And that war within a believer is very, very serious because you have God's Holy Spirit now. Now, if you, if you maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you've thought about Jesus and you're thinking, I like it, but I'm not there. And you say, I, I haven't made that step, but there's still a war in me. I still struggle with things. Well, the Bible also tells us that God has written his moral law on your heart. In your conscience, there is there. What we're talking about today, what Paul's talking about, is the next step when you become a believer because you get the Holy Spirit. And that's why I say as a believer, it's even stronger what happens there because now the Spirit is dwelling within you. But you still have that war even as an unbeliever. If you haven't made that profession of faith, there is still God's moral law. Romans talks about that real clearly, that we don't have any excuse because we know innately God's put it in us. And the reason is we're made in his image. So we have that imprint that we do know, even though it's hidden under all our stuff and our sin and all those things, it's still there. So just so we're clear, it is both. But today we're talking about in terms of believers, so it's even stronger. And I think the reality is I want us to see this this morning when we talk about the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling in us and walking by the spirit versus the flesh. 
the reality is, I want you to think of how huge that is. We can easily gloss over that, especially if you've grown up in the church and we say, I have the Holy Spirit and the Spirit, and we kind of say it almost flippantly. I want you to think about Jesus' words the night before the crucifixion as he's preparing the disciples. He tells them, he says, it will be better for you that I go away because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And I want you to think about what Jesus says there, because what he's saying is, It is better for you to have the Holy Spirit indwelling as a believer than it was to have Jesus physically standing right next to them. Because Jesus, before it was external, outside, you're hearing his teaching and you're seeing him, but now it's internal, heart to heart. It's even great. Jesus says it's even greater. It's better that I go away so I send you the Holy Spirit. And I want you to understand that when he says that, when that happens, we have the Holy Spirit, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. The very power that is going to come back and when Jesus comes back that is going to regenerate all of creation. It lives inside of you now. So the reality is the very real thing we're dealing with here this morning is, and I can say this for all of us. I think I can say this confidently for all of us. We are settling for far too little. If you really grasp What Jesus was saying and what that means. We're settling for too little. And that's the reality of this passage when we look at it. And I want us to think just for a minute the vast differences of walking by the flesh versus walking by the spirit. To let that settle on you what we're settling for. So look at verses 19 through 21. Look at the list he gives us of what it looks like when we walk by the flesh versus walking by the spirit. He says, for the works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like are these. And then he says, um, and I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a huge, huge difference between what's happening there huge difference between what it looks like to walk by the flesh versus to walk by the spirit. Now, when I read that and I say that, there's one thing I want to clarify at the beginning, and that's verse 21, when he says, if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, you can read this list and you can go, I've had fits of anger. Maybe I've had drunkenness or, or sexual immorality or whatever on that list that jumps out that you know you're guilty of. And the reality is we're all guilty of, of some of them. And you read that and he says, if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom. So does that mean you've you've made these sins, you've made a mistake on this list that you're going to hell? That's not what this teaches. And I want us to be clear because this is all throughout scripture. And I want us to understand the warning that Paul is giving us because that's not what he's saying. The connotation in this passage there as you get to the end of verse 21 is talking about a habitual lifestyle that looks like this. If this is what your life is marked with, these things, the reality of what Paul's saying is, it's not that you have to have a certain amount of good works to be saved, but what he's saying is, if there's no works, there's no fruit in your life, and it looks like this list, the reality is you do not understand the gospel. That's what he's saying. If your life, you say, yes, you profess with your lips, I love Jesus and I'm going to I'm saved. And then your entire life looks like this list. The reality is you don't understand it. And the same warning is given in Hebrews four 
The same warning is in the book of James. James says clearly that your life bears witness to what you believe. That's really what James is saying all through that book. That your, your works don't add to your salvation. That's what we've been saying all through Galatians. That is not the case. But what it does mean is your works bear witness to what you believe. When you really believe it, it will start to change your life. And that's what Paul's saying. So I want to make sure we're clear there just at the beginning. Thankfully, it doesn't mean if you've ever messed up and done one of those things, you're going to hell. That's not what it means. Thankfully, because if that was the case, we'd all be in trouble. But what he is saying is what we cut, we hit on last week real briefly. If you look up with me at verse 13, for you are called the freedom, freedom brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That was a problem in the early church. You tell somebody in their sinful nature, you are saved completely by what Christ has done for you. And that's it. And they go, ah, I'm saved. by. Okay, I'll take that. Now I'll go do whatever I want. And that's what Paul's warning us of. You can't do that. If, if you're doing that, you don't understand what Jesus did for you. You don't understand what it cost him. And that's what he's getting at here. And I want us to see just in this list how severe and how serious and what he's really talking about. It's interesting when you look at uh, verse 17, the first part of 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. That literally, that literal uh, translation should be the lust of the flesh. And a lot of times, most, I don't know what your translation, I'm using ESV, the English Standard Version. It says desires of the flesh, but it's really lust of the flesh. And I think they started changing it somewhere in there because of what lust means in English in our culture today. Lust in our culture means usually sexual sin. We immediately go to that. That's what we mean by lust. The biblical definition, though, really of lust is an over-desire for things. It's not just sexual things. It's just an over-desire for for it could be all kinds of things. The reality is when we take the real definition of it, we could say that you can have a lust for entertainment, which is pretty prevalent in our culture. You have an over-desire to be entertained. Or you have a lust for food. That's a very easy one to slip into. An over-desire for food. It's good to have a good meal and enjoy a good meal, but when that becomes something that drives you and you're all about the next meal... If you're finishing one meal and planning the next, the second, maybe that's a sign that you have an over-desire for food, a lust for food. So it can be other things, not just sexual sins. The reality is, I was thinking about it, it's kind of funny to say it, but you can have a lust for football. R- really, you can have an over-desire for sports in your life. And that means if your whole life is focused on the Monday night football game, it's probably become an over-desire in your life. And the reality is when we look at those, a lot of those things are not bad things. It's just when they become an over-desire, when they become too much of a good thing. And that's what Paul's talking about, and that's what we're looking at. When you look at the list, when you think of it, the lust of the flesh, the first three, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality, that jumps right to our kind of English definition of lust. Because what those three are is an over-desire for sex. And that's exactly what we think of lust in our culture. But then if you look at the last two, in my, in my translation here, it says drunkenness and orgies. Some of them it says carousing. And immediately we jump to, oh, that's another sexual thing. Actually, what it's talking about is an over-desire for substances. The orgies or carousing actually means having a big party and getting drunk, essentially is what it means. So really what those last two are saying is an over-desire for substances. That's really what it's saying. So you've got an over-desire for sex and an over-desire for substances. And then you've got all these other ones in the middle. 
You might say, well, how does that fit into over-desire? And when you look at that list, I think the reality is what we see is it's an over-desire for maybe a little more subtle things. An over-desire for reputation. An over-desire for having control. And you start to make sense of that list that way. An over-desire for how I'm viewed by others. And you start to look at that and then that makes sense. Why we would have rivalries and dissension and envy. That the over-desire for those things, it's a lot more subtle, but it's still there. And you can kind of trace all of them back to the over-desires. And you start to see what we're settling for when we get into these things and what the root of them is. But we really even need to look at the, the fruits of the Spirit. Because Paul says they're opposed to each other. And to get the fullness of one, you need the other. If they're, they're opposites in a lot of ways, you need, to, you need to look at them both together. So look at the fruits of the Spirit in verse 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you look at those, and when you start to understand the opposites, you understand what you're settling for by taking the, the opposite side, by taking the flesh. And I'm not going to go through all of those. We could spend weeks just on the fruit of the Spirit and what they mean and all that. Actually, if you haven't been to Sunday school when we do it, we're going to talk some about that next week in Sunday school. So if you want to talk more about those, we're going to do that in there. So there's your plug for Sunday school right in the middle of the sermon. But uh, come and we'll, we'll talk about that. But what I want us to see, I'm just going to use one as an example here. And I'm going to take love to begin with. That love is the opposite of a lot of these. And when we look at biblically what love means, it's really serving, being unselfish, uh, opening up and serving others for the intrinsic value of who they are. And when we say that biblically, that means the intrinsic value of who they are is that they are made in God's image and after his likeness. That's why you love others, because they are God's image bearers. That's why we're supposed to love others and love all, because each person, no matter who they are, is intrinsically an image bearer of God because they are made in his image. Which that speaks to a lot of things very quickly that I'm not going to go into, but one that jumped to my mind as I thought that this week was racism. When you understand the biblical understanding of love, it completely wipes out racism. Completely. But I'm not going to go to that today, but just so you think about it, what that really means. But when we think about what love means, that it's outwardly focused in loving others for who they are, go back to the original sin, because what happened in the original sin? Adam and Eve were going along, everything was perfect, their relationship was perfect, their relationship with God was perfect. The serpent comes along and suddenly turns it to them. Don't you want to be like God, right? He turns it selfish. So when sin entered the world, we went from being outwardly focused, loving, to inwardly focused, selfish. So the opposite of love, when we start to think about that with the opposite of love, it's really selfishness, self-protection, being about an over-desire for my name and who I am and who, what's happening with me. Right. And then you see that. What's the opposite of that? There it is right in the middle of the works of the flesh. Rivalries, dissensions, fits of anger, jealousy, envy. They all flow out of that. You see the opposite. You see what you're giving up by working for the desires of the flesh and giving into that versus the desires of the spirit. They're opposites. They're the opposite side of one another. You know, in the Bible, it says that perfect love casts out all fear. 
the fear of getting hurt, the fear of just loving others because you're loving them for who they are and you're not worried about what I get out of it. Right? That takes care of all these things, all these works of the flesh. So I say all that to try to get us to see what we're settling for, how far removed it is from what God's even original plan for us was. And you can see it, and I'll give you one more example, but you can even see it in the way we look at sex today. Sex has become so distorted for what it is and what it's meant to be, and it's all about personal gratification and all these things, and that's not what it was ever created for. And we've totally messed it up because we're we're going for the over-desire, the sinful nature, we're letting it drive how we see it, and it's a mess. So why in the world do we give in for these things? Why are we settling? Hopefully we look at that and we go, yeah, we're settling for way too less. Look at the differences. Hopefully you see how far apart they are, so why are we doing it? And I think the reality is, look at verse 17 again, the the very end part of it. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The reality is our sinful fleshly nature is all marred and messed up. And the things we want to do are the things of the flesh a lot of times. And the reason we do is because sin has invaded us and we need someone to, to stop us, to tell us. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what God does for us in Christ. We're a mess. And it sounds gross, but it's, uh, I'm not making this up, but it's, not, it's exactly like the, uh, a dog returns to his own vomit. That's us and our flesh. We do the things that we think are good and the way we feel, and that's the way my sinful nature feels, so I'll just do it. And the reality is it's a mess. And we're going right back to the things that got us in trouble in the first place. And we do it over and over. And we go to the expedient thing versus the thing that God would have us do. And we do that over and over. And you see it all the time. And the reality is the reason we do it is, one, it's easier. It's immediate. Oh, that's how I feel. We act on feelings. How can you tell me my feelings are wrong? Well, your feelings are wrong because you're sinful. And, that, and that's, I'm not saying that just to you. That's me too. A lot of times our feelings are simply wrong Because we're so in the flesh. And that's why we have to get into the being led by the spirit versus our flesh. And that's the reality of it. And so you take that, but then you add to it. And I said this before, that a lot of these things are not bad things. A lot of these things are good things that we make over desires. We make them too good of things. And we make them have a place that they shouldn't have. And uh, I was thinking, Joanne and I have a saying, we say it all the time, of we have the... uh, Good full versus bad full. That's the way we talk in our house. And she knows we know what we're talking about. When we sit down and we have a really good meal, she cooks a good, some great meal and it's so good and you start to eat it. And if you stop when you're full, that's the good full. You're satisfied and it was this really good meal and oh, that was great. The bad full is when you go, that's so good, I'm going to have a little more. And then I think I'll have dessert. Oh, the dessert's really good. I think I'll have. And then all of a sudden you feel, oh, the bad full. You feel terrible because you just overate. And a good desire became an over-desire. It became too much. And you pushed it and you kept going. And we do that with so many things. We make good things into ultimate things, which leads us right back to the works of the flesh. That's idolatry. We talked about that a few weeks ago. When we take something good and make it better than it should be, that's idolatry. But you see how they're all interconnected. And you can see why we do it. Because they're good things. The perfect example in our culture is sex. And I go back to that because... Satan is the great deceiver. He can't come up with anything on his own. He can't create on his own. So he has to take what God made and distort it. So he takes something that God made for marriage, 
that was a very uh, wonderful thing for in the confines of marriage, sex, and he distorts it. And he makes it all about now and this is you want this and this is who you are and just do whatever you want. And that's the deception that Satan gets. And the reality is we end up settling for far less by taking that deception. If you really think about it, marriage, God tells us in the Bible, marriage is to point to Christ's love for the church. Marriage is a parable of what Christ is going to do with his bride, the church. What a beautiful picture to think about. If you take it to the next step, sex within marriage is the same thing as the Lord's table is within the church. You see how much deeper and greater and more intimate that is than what our society sells us? They are worlds apart. Do you understand that? Do you see that that analogy? That sex within marriage is that, that coming together as one flesh that you're renewing that covenant promise of marriage within that. When we come to the Lord's table, we're doing the same. We're, we're remembering what Christ has done for us. Do you see how those work together? That God gives us these vivid pictures of his love for us and we take them and distort them? It's the best example I could think of because it's everywhere. The reality is, oh, well, sex is a natural desire, so sex sells, so let's put it in everything. And it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. It's a mess in our society with what it leads to. Whether you talk about abortions or diseases or whatever. It's everywhere. And the reality is it's because we're settling for far too little. By the way, when you think about all these things, your over-desires and the things in your life that can become over-desires, that's a wonderful reason why you should adopt fasting as a Christian discipline. And not just food, anything you can think of. The reality is when you start to take on that as a discipline, fasting reveals where your over-desires are real quickly. If the thought of going a day without food is just overwhelming to you, food is an over-desire in your life. Or not watching TV for a day, or not checking your email, whatever it may be. When you remove it, if it's that big of a thing to you, it's an over-desire. And that's why the, the, the discipline of, of fasting within a Christian's life is a wonderful thing because it helps recenter you on what's truly important. But that's just a added bonus there, so we're moving on. How do we deal with the struggle? Actually, actually it's not because fasting would help you deal with the struggle. So you can, that'll be the connection to the next one. But lastly, how do we deal with this? We slip into it easily. How do we deal with with the struggle. And I want you to just get the big picture here of what Paul's saying. He's saying that how we deal with the struggle is we go to war. That's really what he's saying. You go to war, you put to death the desires of the flesh, and you walk by the Spirit. Now, I can say that. That's what the Bible says. That's what it says here. And you go, okay. That's easy. We say, well, just walk by the Spirit. And then people go, well, okay, yeah. Uh, and we pretend like, yeah, I know exactly what that means. Now I'm going to go do it. And the reality is sometimes we kind of leave it out there, and I don't want us to just leave it like, oh, yeah, that's just the answer. It is the answer, but how do we do it? What I want you to see, though, first, before we even consider that, is what this is not, what this passage is not. This passage is not a list of don't do this and do do this. Right? Don't take 19, 20, and 21 and then say this is the list of all the things you don't do, and and the 23 and 24 is the list of the things. That is true. I'm not saying that's not true, but if you look at it as an external list, we've done exactly what the Galatians were doing. 
We've made it about external, outside things that try to constrain your behavior, and we make it about moralism and legalism. And that's not what Paul's saying. He is saying you will do these, that you will do verses 22 and 23, and you won't do 19 to 21 if you do what he says. But the way he's saying to do it is different than just making a bunch of rules. I want you to see that. So I wanted you to make sure we're not getting that. So how do we do it? And I think verse 24 gets us to the heart of how we do it. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And what that means, I think I was thinking about uh, John Stott and his commentary on Galatians said it real well. And it got me kind of in the right frame of mind thinking about this. And he says, Jesus demands that we take up his cross and follow him. And he says, Paul uh, brings the analogy along to the next step. And he says, we need to make sure we don't just walk with our cross, but we see to it the execution takes place. That we take our sinful old way of life. We were dead in our trespasses of sin. And we take those things and we nail them to the cross and we put them aside. How do we do that? What's the simple, and I think the reality is, we start the, the way we do it is we develop a serious contempt for sin. We fight to see sin for the way God sees sin, the way perfect holiness sees sin. And we see all the light, um, all in the light of the gospel. And the way we do that is verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, a lot of times I've heard this taught before. I've seen it in commentaries where they say, well, Paul says crucify because crucifixion was a long death and it was slow and it was painful and sanctification, the, the process of growing towards God is a long, slow process. And I think that's true. I'm not making light of that. That's not a bad thing to say about it. But I think the answer to how you get the serious contempt for your sin is not by just making this neat little analogy to what crucify means, but actually seeing what Paul's saying. You see all in the light of the cross. And what Jesus did for you. And what I kept coming back to when I thought about that over and over this week was the song that we sing so much lately, How Deep the Father's Love. And we get to the line in that song and we say, It was my sin that held him there. That is how you develop a contempt for your sin. It was yours and my sin that held him on the cross. That is the reality of the gospel. He was put to death because of my sin. So when I take fleshly, I'm going to walk by the flesh because that's how I feel. It's like spitting in Jesus' face as he hangs on the cross. Do you see how serious that is? That is the way. That is why Paul says it's not about adding rules. He says it's about a heart change that comes from the gospel. That's why it's Christ alone and what he did for you alone, because it's the gospel. It's not, don't do these things. Oh, you really want to do these things, but don't do these things. It's being changed to where you don't want to do these things anymore because you see what it cost Jesus on the cross and how much he loved you. That is the reality of how we put our sin to death, how we nail it to the cross, and how we walk by the Spirit. 
It's not some external rules. It's by being changed by what he's done for us. Do you see the difference? It's huge. And that's what Paul's getting at all the way through Galatians. Don't make this about rules. Don't make this about your works and how good you're trying to be. Make it about Jesus and what he's done for you. And that is what will change you. Do you see that difference? It is so, so far removed from the way we often work and think in our sinful, fleshly self. And when we get that, that takes us to 16 where he says, But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or in verse 25, he says, if you live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And that's why. That's why he can say that. If you walk by the Spirit, you won't care about these things. Because it will have changed your heart. And that's what we talked about last week. That you'll do the things you want to do because the things you want to do or you want to satisfy and love your Father. And the eternal joy that that brings versus the temporal distortions that we try to put forth. See how different that is. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for what you did for us. I pray that we would fight to see every single area of our lives, the places we struggle, the places where we've seen uh, your deliverance, that we would see all of them in the light of what you've done for us. The only way that we can do any of this is because of your spirit working within us, because of your love that you came and sought us even when we were wandering and sinful. We were dead in our trespasses and you came and you died for us anyway. I pray that we would see every bit of our lives in the light of that each and every day and that it would lead us to walk by your Spirit fully in every moment. We thank you for what you've done for us and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.